Good morning. We've been looking at guaranteed gifts. There's nothing more frustrating than a gift that doesn't work as advertised and isn't warranted against defects. We've been considering gifts that God gives that are unconditionally guaranteed. We began with reconciliation, the turning of a relationship of enmity to one of peace and goodwill. talked about rest, which is the byproduct of understanding not only what God asks, but the manner in which he asks it. And Jesus comes to give us God's will, and he does so in a gentle way. And now we're going to talk about redemption as the final of these three gifts, reconciliation, rest, and redemption. In Colossians, it says, he has delivered us, the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The word redemption literally means to release from. It's the means of what it really envisions is untying something from something else or someone from someone else. That's what it means to redeem. It's to untie or loose from or release from. When we talk about Christian redemption, we're talking about Christ as the one who sets us free, as the one who releases us, unties us. So the question becomes, what does Jesus release us from? And what does he release us to? Releases us from slavery. We see biblically that sin is an enslaving tyrant. Look what it says in Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 17. Paul writes, but we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. We look at sin here. Sin, sometimes in the Bible, naturally is an act. It's a choice that we make. But when Paul talks about sin here, he's not talking about sin as an act, not something we do. Sin here is a power. It's a controlling influence or a controlling force. It's something that masters another person or exerts influence over that person. Uh, when Paul puts his finger on his spiritual pulse and he tries to figure out what his spiritual issue is, what he ends up doing, he discovers that he wants to do what God wants him to do. So he knows the right thing to do. Not only does he know the right thing to do, he wants to do it. So he knows the right thing to do. He wants to do it, but what he discovers is that he cannot he cannot do the things that he wants, and he does the things that he does not want to do. What's the problem? What's the problem? What do you tell yourself? Lack of will? If you know the right thing to do and don't do it, it must be a lack of will. 
And then the solution is to want it more. Or it could be a lack of knowledge, a need to know more. Paul discovered that it's neither of these. It wasn't a lack of knowledge. He knew the right thing. It wasn't a lack of will. He wanted to do the right thing. It, he describes, is sin living within. It is no longer I who do it, he says, but sin living within me. Sin here is not an act. It's not that Paul is populated by choices and acts, not here. Sin here, you might think it of King's sin with a capital S and a crown on its head, something that pushes us and influences us. That's the way he sees it. I think you agree with me. You can't treat a disease until you first accurately diagnosed it. If you go into a hospital and say, I don't know, I might have this or I might have that, they're not going to be able to treat that disease effectively. And it's the same thing spiritually. We can't really understand the solution until we understand the problem. Do you agree? And what Paul is indicating here, he's putting his finger on a problem that's puzzling in a way. He says it's sin living within. And again, it's important to clarify if the problem is a lack of will. If that's the problem, what's the solution? Increased desire. That's fairly straightforward. Need to want it more. If the problem is a lack of knowledge, what's the solution? We need to gain more knowledge. If the problem is sin living within, sin as a power, as a controlling influence, how do you solve that problem? That's what Paul talks about, and that's really where redemption comes in. Redemption is release from the bondage of slavery. This is what redemption accomplishes. God doesn't fault, again, our lack of will. He doesn't fault our lack of knowledge. God doesn't fault sinful acts. They are issues. But God faults king sin. Sin is a power. Sin as an enslaving tyrant. What indicates that while sin is an enslaving tyrant, God is a liberating king. God redeems us by breaking the control of an oppressive, enslaving force. This is what redemption is. Breaking the control of an oppressive force, it's release from slavery. Redemption, one way you can release someone from the bonds of slavery is by ransoming them. That's one way of loosing someone from the control of someone else. It's widely taught that sinful acts are the basic problem that we deal with. Now, sinful acts are a problem, but not the problem that Paul points out here. Again, it's not sin as an act, it's sin as a power here. But it is taught, and it is a problem, that sinful acts, and, and it's taught that we got ourselves into a mess by our bad choices, and God has to clean up our mess, and he had to kill his son in order to pay the ransom price. And it seems to indicate that. The Bible indicates in Mark 10, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And ransom there is a translation of the word to untie, to loose from. That is a way 
that loosing slaves occurs. But the question is, is this what God did? Did he pay a ransom? And if he paid a ransom, who did he pay it to? Who does God need to pay off in order to let people go free? I think that's the issue. Um, redemption, again, is to release, but you can release individuals a number of different ways. Um, redemption is not necessarily the paying of a ransom. Here, I don't think it is. Sin is not an act here. It's a hostile power. And here's the deal. God does not negotiate with hostile kings. He doesn't pay off hostile kings. Think about Israel when they were under the control of Pharaoh. Did God pay off Pharaoh? Pay off a ransom to him to let the Israelites go free? No, he doesn't negotiate with hostile powers. He conquers them. And that's what we find with Israel. He did a number of plagues. And so in the when the dust cleared, the Israelites walked off and God didn't pay anyone anything. They walked off of their own foot. In fact, they ended up with more things heading out than they went heading in. Uh, God conquered Egypt. This is how he releases us from bondage. This is how he redeems us. Problem is, historically, some movements to release enslaved people have done little more than transfer them from the hands of one dictator into the hands of another. That can happen oftentimes. Somebody comes and claims, I'm going to break the yoke of this oppression. And then the oppression that, that ends up coming into play is as bad as the oppression that was just finished. Uh, there's an article. We're not going to read it in your worship folder. It's from Romans. And if you want to read a little bit more about what we're talking about. I'm not going to read it with you, but I just invite you to take that out some point and you can look at it. Um, but sometimes it can be to be redeemed. Again, we understand what redeemed means, right? To release from, to untie from, to loose from. Um, sometimes it's not a change of, it's a change of, not a change of fortune, but a change of address, not a change of status, but a change of dictator. Not so from, not so with God. When God releases us from slavery, he restores us to sonship. In fact, if you want to know what redemption means, it's those two things. Redemption means two things. Released from slavery, restored to sonship. That's what redemption means, Christianly. To be released, released from slavery, number one. Restored to sonship, number two. Um, Look what it says in Ephesians. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have, here's our word, redemption. Through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Before the world was created, God chose to have children. It's um, He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. God purposed ahead of time to adopt us as sons and daughters. Some look at this passage and believe that it's indicating that before 
the world existed or before man existed, God determined ahead of time the precise individuals who would be his sons and daughters and who would not be. And it's taught that God predestines some to be his sons and daughters and some he predestines not to be his sons and daughters. And there's a lot of different things that are highlighted to try to make sense of that, that God sees ahead of time what we'll do, and then he chooses us ahead of time. It, 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 frankly, it doesn't make much sense to me. And that's not the point in this passage. The point in the passage, it's not talking about individuals. It's not talking about you're in, you're out, you're in, you're out, you're in. What it's talking about is two groups of people, Jews and Gentiles. In the Old Testament, the Jews were the chosen people. Though the question was, when Jesus comes and he dies, and the Gentiles are invited in, are they second-class spiritual citizens? I mean, he has been the God of the Jews for, well, thousands of years. Almost a couple thousand years. Um, And in opening the door of salvation to the Gentiles, most of us here are Gentiles. Paul dealing with the question, are we second-class spiritual citizens? Are we the B team, the traveling squad? I mean, there's the real ones, and then they kind of drop the ball. And so, okay, okay, well, who do I get now? I guess Gentiles come on in. And that's not the point. Before God created the world, he determined that Jews and Gentiles together would be his sons and daughters. That's what this passage is saying. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons. Adopted who? Both Jews and Gentiles. That's the point. Um, this is what God intended before the beginning of time. Seemed to indicate that we would experience slavery to sin. That's part of the way that God unveils salvation. It begins with a slavery. And then comes, there's our word. You know the word now. Redemption. Which is to be released from slavery. Restored to, what do you mean restored to sonship? Before the world was ever created, God determined that he would adopt sons and daughters. Determined ahead of time. See, When man fell into sin, God didn't have to go to plan B. There was never, that was plan A. Again, there's all kinds of questions. God wasn't surprised by what happened in the garden. He knew it. He didn't look to Jesus and say, okay, Jesus, you're going to have to enter the scene here. Jesus was chosen before the creation of time to be the Savior of the world. Um, It raises a lot of questions, but one thing it points out, God knows what he's doing. He's never surprised. He's never at a loss. He determines from the beginning of time what will happen and why. He is a father who adopts sons and daughters. Um, Well, that's great, then. Wonderful. Everyone. Our sons and daughters of God, then, right? I mean, if that's what he wants, then everybody's sons and daughters, right? doesn't indicate. That's not what the Bible indicates. There are some choices to make. There's some believing to do, and there's remaining, and there's escaping. There's some, there is something that we are to do. It is to hear the news, believe it, and continue to make room for it. And, and that's, look what it says. Um, in love, no, it's, 
John 8, 31. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him. These are Jews who heard what he did, saw what he did. They said, you know what? Yep, we're in. We believe that you are who you say you are. And this is what he said to them, to those who had believed him. You are now my children. No, it doesn't really say that. But they believed him. Here's what he said. If you abide in my word, if you remain in my teaching, all he asked them to do is remain. Make room for what I'm saying. Make room for it. Open your mind to it. Let it dwell there. And he says, if you remain in my Abide my word, remain in my teaching, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, I, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. What's our part? Really straightforward. It's to hear, believe, and then not just believe. It says, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide or remain in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Believe, remain, escape. Believe, believe what? The good news that God determined that those who believe would be sons and daughters. Guess what kind of news this is? This is good news. Is it hard to keep good news in your mind? Is it hard to remain in good news? If the news isn't good, it's hard to keep bad news in our brain. Would you agree with me? We don't like bad news. We don't like bad news. And for too many people, the message of the Bible is either bad news or not so good news. Redemption is good news. Redemption's good news. Releasing, being released from slavery, being restored to sonship, his sons and daughters, and what we'll see, part of his forever family. Is that good news? Is that good news? Could you keep that in your mind? Could you, could you make room for that? That that's what God's desire is? Could you make room for that? You know what it indicates? If you believe it, that's what Jesus came to do. Redemption. Redemption. Released from slavery. Restored to sonship. That's the news. Make room for it. And if you make room for it, you know what it starts to do? It starts to set you free. You start to understand, set you free from what? From thinking like slaves that have to kowtow to a master. That's not what God's purpose is. It's sons and daughters who will come to a father. That's what God internally sees himself as. That's the good news. Could you make room for that? If you do, what's going to happen is this. It will begin to put in effect a change in the way you think about him as a father. And guess what? You will start to act more like a son and a daughter, just like Jesus. Believe, 
remain and escape. Bible indicates that there's two classes of people. There are slaves and there are sons and daughters. Period. That's it. Slaves, sons and daughters. Slaves of what? We already looked at that. Slaves of sin. Again, not just slaves who sin, slaves of sin. Sin is a power. And there are those who serve sin. And there's sons and daughters who work, walk with God. And that's the way the Bible kind of divides mankind into two different categories. Um, the slave does not remain in the house forever. It says in John 8, the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. What's the difference between a slave and a son and a daughter? A slave doesn't have a permanent place in the family. See, the way slavery worked, if you kept doing what you should do, avoiding what you shouldn't do, you were retained within the family. You were kept in the family. However, if you failed to do what you need to do, if you did what you shouldn't do, you were sent out of, how could they do that? You're a slave. Slaves have no permanent place in the family. How about if you're a son or daughter? What happens if you don't do what you should do? Are you sent packing? No, that's what happens to a slave. A son and a daughter has a permanent place in the family. They remain in it forever. Are you telling me that I cannot jeopardize my place in the family? I'm saying that. Well, what do I need to do? You need to believe it. You need to remain in it. Keep that in your head. Believe, remain, escape. Escape what? Slavery to king's sin. Now, that doesn't mean you won't do sinful acts. We do, but sons and daughters of God, when they do things, it does not jeopardize our relationship with the Father. We have a permanent place in the family. Great, I can do whatever I want. See, you know what ends up happening? We end up being afraid. If I believe that, Mike, mm -hmm, let's talk about it. If you believed and made room in your mind for the fact that your acts do not jeopardize your place in the family, what would happen if you believed that more deeply? I do whatever I want to do. Really? Think about it. Think about it. You know what Jesus indicates? That's not the way it works. To those who believed him, he says, if you remain in my word, then you're my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You know what happens when you make room for that? You start to experience freedom. Freedom from what? From slavery to sin. The freedom of being a son or a daughter of God who knows that I don't have to walk this tightrope or God's going to throw me out of the family. What ends up happening, it starts to build in a sense of, get this, security. Security gives the sense that God's not dangling me over a pit. And you know what? We end up doing that. We end up getting this. We trust him. We start to want to follow him. We start to love him and love others. That's the way it works. God doesn't, by the way, 
own slaves. God doesn't own slaves. He adopts sons and daughters. That's what he does. That's what redemption means. Uh, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Again, slavery is the problem. Not a lack of will. Not a lack of knowledge. But controlled by a superior power. By sin living within. God invites slaves of sin to become sons and daughters of God. He redeems these slaves by conquering the power that held them against their will. Sons and daughters of God remain in Christ's teaching. It says, if you abide in my word, remain in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Remain is the Christian word, not receive. I want to be clear. Some people who receive Christ in prayer remain and are Christians. Some people who receive Christ don't remain. Maybe because they don't know the good news. Maybe because they never really believed it. They believe some news, but not the news of redemption. But the Christian word is remain. You say, Mike, I'm afraid. I've been told that being a Christian is about asking Jesus into my life. And again, I remember when I made that decision. It was in April of 1972, and I understood what I was doing. And again, I wasn't perfect, wasn't sinless. I was a freshman, became a sophomore year, and ended up making bad choices. But in the back of my mind, I knew the decision that I had made. And I was making room slowly. It happened really slowly. Remember, I was in a Bible study every week. I'd come to this guy whose Bible, hey, have you guys seen my Bible? Yeah, Mike, it's where you left it last week. This happened every week. Your Bible, it's exactly where you left it last week. Again, Mike, you never take it home. Oh, oh, thanks. Okay, there it is. Just good to know where it is. And over time, I remember it was, um, I was a junior and, um, somebody invited me to go to a retreat. And again, I had made more stupid choices after asking Jesus in my life than I had ever done before. My nickname in high school was, why am I giving you this information? <laughs> See, this is, this, is the, this is the pathological part. I'm about to give you information that you will be able to use against me. Some of you know this nickname. <laughs> okay. Here it is. Here's my nickname. They call me <laughs> Halo. <laughs> because I I didn't make a lot of stupid choices. I went to church all the time. Um, then I then I got into college, ended up you know, they say that when you're a sophomore in college, that's when you understand that you're not in your home anymore. You start to make more choices and I did. And um, I remember I went to this retreat. I have no idea why this guy corralled me to go to this retreat. I really don't. I ended up going there. And then um, this guy whose Bible study ended up going in and leaving my Bible at his room week by week. He says, you know, my, um, my campus director for this group I was in said that he'd like to have you in this Bible study, but you're too inconsistent. And he wasn't he wasn't mean to me. You're just telling me the truth. 
I remember I, I, I walked outside then. I walked around and I, I got alone and I, I said, you know, God, this, this thing about you and me, this has been fire insurance. That's what it's been. It's something to get me out of a jam. But if there's more to this, and if you can do stuff in my life, I really like that. I like that. And I remember I was, I was, I was, I remember there, I was in a fence. I haven't talked really honestly to God. You know, I, I knew the prayers growing up. But I made, did business with him and didn't experience any dramatic anything. But I went back and I started to get involved in this campus ministry. And then they, the next summer, somebody said, you know what, there's this summer beach project. Oh, you know, you know, I, one more story real quick. So anyways, so I'm, I'm kind of messing around now with um, this decision I've made. And so then there was a conference that was meeting over Christmas in the, the, the winter of 1972. And so there was this project. I lived in Boston. Philadelphia is where I went to school, the University of Pennsylvania. And that's about... Ah, geez, I don't know how far away it is. I should know. I think it was three or four hours. Anyways, so I said, you know what? I really should go to this conference. I think, yeah, maybe. so this is what I'll do. If I wake up in the morning, I'll go. And I made sure to get to bed at a nice, good time. I went to bed at two. <laughs> I did. So, okay, God, here's the deal. And this, no joke. There's no joke about I'm not. I'm not embellishing this thing. So anyway, so I'm home for Christmas break, and I don't tell my parents what's up. So I said, you know, so God, okay, here's the deal. Yeah, if I get up, if you wake me up, you know, then I'll, <laughs> then I'll go to the conference. And then, <laughs> no joke, six, bing, my eyes were open, and, and I, I walked downstairs to tell my mom, okay, Ma, you know, I'm going to go to Philadelphia. Could you make me some eggs? Michael, you know. <laughs> so anyways, I did, and I had no ride. So... So this was what I said, could you give me a ride? This is winter. My mother did this. So she let me off by the interstate. No joke. Let me off by the interstate. You know, there's Route 128 goes down to, and you take it down to 95, and 95 winds down the coast. So I, I get out there, I have, the, I have my duffel bag, and I stick my thumb out. And this guy gives me a ride to the Mass Pike, which is about an, eh, maybe half an hour away. And so then he lets me out at the Mass Pike, and there goes my thumb again. No joke. I'm not joking. This guy picks me up, and he's going by the hotel in Philadelphia. He gives me a ride from the Mass Pike, goes past this hotel where the conference is, and lets me off. And, and this, that was another one of those experiences where, huh, yeah, this is interesting. I started to get involved in this Christian organization and um, became its song leader the next year. And I had people come up to me afterwards and, and say, I don't understand this. I didn't know anything, but I really liked spiritual influence. Really liked it. Liked talking to people about that stuff. And when I came to a place of trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life, I went to school for pre-med. That didn't last very long. 
Um, but I ended up going into full-time ministry with this organization. And there's more stories there. Anyways, um, remaining is the deal. And remaining is the Christian word. And it's cumulative. It's something that happens. You make room for it. That's what happened. I made room for more stuff and more stuff and got a Bible and actually started to read it and remain a little bit more and a little bit more. Um, remaining is challenging. Just so you know, liberation is real, but you're not going to experience it in its totality on this side of the grave. Just so you know, it's something we are to believe and remain in. It is not something you're going to experience. You will not live independence of sin. You will continue to struggle with sin. That's what it indicates. Um, Look what it says in Romans 8. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only but the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. Who hopes for what he sees? If we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. What it's indicating, redemption is real, but you will not see it in its totality during this life. You will struggle with sin, but what the Bible would have you understand? On the far side of the grave, your struggle will be over. The redemption of our bodies is talking about, so we don't, this is not an ideal living arrangement that we're in right now. We are immortal spirits in mortal bodies, not a great living arrangement. It's two different operating systems. They clash with each other until we die. If you're a son of daughter of God through believing, remaining, What will happen? You will die. If Jesus comes back and you translate it from living like this, being caught up, let's say you go into the ground. What happens? Your body goes into the ground when you die. Your spirit goes up to be with him. When Jesus comes a second time, Here's what's going to happen. Your spirit, your body is going to come out of the ground. And a mortal body won't get sick anymore. And you know what else it won't do? It won't have a different operating system. You will become an immortal spirit in an immortal body. And you'll stop being at war with yourself on the far side of being an immortal spirit in an immortal body, this inward sense of struggle will be done. Finished. Forever. That's on the far side of the grave. On this side of the grave, the battle 
battle, this side of the grave? What it says, in the meantime, we, word, you know what word it uses? Groan. Groan. Like a spirit that's entombed. Oh. Oh. You know what? If I put my ear to your spirit, you know what I'm going to hear? Oh. Oh. And you might hear that and say, that's unbelief. I should be having victory in Jesus. That's unbelief. i got to snap myself out of it. No, you're in struggle now. You have to, what we're to believe is the struggle is not going to last forever. How do you know that, Mike? Redemption. Release from slavery. Restore to sonship. I'm going to come by you in 50, 60, 70 years. For all of us, 80, 90. On that, some might still be here. 100, 110 years, we're all going to be gone. You will go into the ground. Your spirit will go somewhere else. Believe, remain, escape. Believe in Christ. Believe in what he says, redemption. Hold on to it. I want to put my, I want to come alongside you 100 years, 110 years from now. Hey, Josh, let me listen. No groaning. No groaning. A spirit and a body in sync. No fighting. No conflict. Free. Free. Forever. Are you free now? Yeah. Can you experience that freedom now? No. You still have sin living within. For a time. For time. That's what the Bible indicates. Um, on this side of the final stage of redemption, we groan inwardly as we await eagerly for our adoption to sons, the redemption of our bodies. In the meantime, we groan. We hope for a freedom that we cannot presently see fully. Who hopes for what he sees? If we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The final stage of redemption is something you're going to have to wait for. You're not going to experience it now. The battle doesn't end now. It will one day. It will one day. And what we do on this side of it is we hope and we groan. Um, don't add the burden of guilt to the tension of sin living within. The reason why we need to be in Christ is not to eliminate the tension of sin living within, but in, to endure it. Um, we remain in Christ's teaching to endure it. Sing a final song. Come on up. I'm going to ask uh, JC to close in prayer in just a sec. <laughs> Randy just reminded me. What we've been doing at 9 o'clock right before the service as we work our way through 1 Corinthians, we're going to conduct and convene a study 
meets right in that room there at 9 o'clock, and it's about questions. You don't have to prepare anything, but you begin to think about the passage that we'll be talking about during the service. And so invite you to come back. It's facilitated, discussion-oriented. You don't have to answer questions. You said it'll have some questions about background, a way you can get to know each other, a way you can begin to understand the text a little bit, think about it, think about what it's saying, and then as you as you hear it here, you can say, oh, no, yeah, or no. So that's 9 o'clock next next Sunday morning and each successive week after that. Bow with me. And dear Father, we um, hear you today say that um, sin is a king that enslaves us and you come to liberate. Redemption is a conquering act and we're so thankful for it. Uh, we love the fact that before time you decided and um, you decided to conquer this thing and you decided to include children. And we're glad to be sons and daughters. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.